Let's just pray again. Father, we've just sung that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. It is a strange thing, but a wonderful thing that you use ordinary human beings to declare your truth from your word, the Bible. And somehow, not because of the person preaching, but because of the God that you are and your grace, that we can glimpse your glory. And we pray with your word open that we may see the Lord Jesus and his love for sinners and so be changed by his ministry to us, we pray. Amen. When it, December comes around each year, we often have that phrase about getting into the Christmas spirit. Perhaps you've always wondered what that means. Of course, now it's the end of January, and if we had any such spirit this past December, I'm guessing it's long gone. But I'm hoping, in a way, to take you back there as we enter Ruth chapter 4 this evening. At least in one sense, anyway. I don't mean for us to evoke the sentimentality of dreaming of the Christmases we used to know, as the song goes, but to see in this story, as we conclude the book of Ruth, that we see in its pages the spirit of the one who was rich, who for our sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. A spirit that should shape all who follow the Lord Jesus, who declared himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and calls us to be servants. When I talk of capturing the Christmas spirit, I mean it in the sense that the theologian and author J.I. Packer does when he says this, the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow man. And as we think of such actions, as we've traveled through this book of the Bible, don't we see that in the actions of Ruth and Boaz? You see, the book of Ruth, I hope you've seen this already, is all about human beings emulating the God who is love, by God's grace, reproducing in themselves steadfast, self-giving love. That is the character, the very heart of God himself. This book paints a vision for us of the power of such life-giving love in the life of a community. As individuals live this life of love, In that sense, redeeming love should not only be the theme of our song. The book of Ruth tells us it should be the theme of our lives. So as we come to the conclusion of the story of the book of Ruth, I want this evening not only to see the way in which the love of Ruth and Boaz points us to the love of Christ, and of course it does that, we'll see that, but also to see 
but to live in the line of your Redeemer King is the best life to live. So think about the choices you are making, the priorities you set. Are they marked by, if you like, the spirit of Christmas, the spirit that we've witnessed in the life of Ruth and Boaz, but of course is exemplified and magnified and life-giving to us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter wants us, if you like, to be drawn into the legacy of God's saving love. That's what we're going to see. That's the claim of this chapter on our lives. Be drawn into the legacy of God's love. And it does so by speaking in a number of different ways about this idea of redemption. It speaks of the culture of redemption, the cost of redemption, the consequences of redemption, and finally the continuation of redemption. Those are our four points this evening as we look in at this chapter and I trust drawn in to this legacy of God's love that we see revealed. So firstly then, the culture of redemption. You see, as we dive into this chapter, Ruth chapter 4, we need a little bit of background because it speaks in ways which are a little bit strange to us, doesn't it? As it talks about guarding redeemers and their role and that type of thing. And the particular thing that we need to understand is this attitude of steadfast redeeming love was in the DNA of Israel. This is not something invented by Ruth or Boaz or the townsfolk of Bethlehem. No, the idea of a redeemer goes back to the time, of course, when God rescued, redeemed his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. His people were, as you know, were in great trouble, and God rescues them. Through Moses, he sends plagues in order to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And when Pharaoh changed his mind and went after the Israelites, God parts the Red Sea so they could escape. From then, the Israelites referred to their God as their Redeemer. (coughs) Excuse me. Their history began with this act of redeeming love. And this saving work was so was to shape the people themselves. It was reflected in the law that God gave Moses within the different family clans in Israel. Members should look out for one another. And so a guardian redeemer, this idea that's referred to in this chapter, emerged towards God, gives to them, where a guardian redeemer would have an obligation to redeem a relative (coughs) if they get into serious difficulty, just in the way that God had redeemed Israel when it got into serious difficulty. And so we can read that, for example, in Leviticus 25, of this, this situation that this chapter refers to of land and relatives and the redemption of them when people are in need. In Leviticus 25, we read this, God instructs the people of the land that they would receive as they come into the promised land. The land must not be sold permanently <coughs> sorry, because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it 
and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can go back to their own, then they can go back to their own property. (coughs) In this way, God the Redeemer wants his people to be redeemers too. The land was God's possession, given as a gift for his people. They might be a situation where a family was in financial need and needed to sell the land, but their right to the land, God's gift, should not be lost. Ideally, a relative should come to redeem the land, or later the one who sold it may buy it back. This was God's provision for the well-being of families so that their ties to the land, God's land, remained. (coughs) It's this situation that the the chapter opens with. Perhaps you'll remember the last time we were left on a bit of a cliffhanger. As I said earlier, Ruth has gone to Boaz to call him to marry her and redeem Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech's land. And Moses stressed his willingness, but realized there was a closer relative with a prior claim to redeem the land. Boaz, as chapter 3 closes, insists that he would seek to sort the matter out. And this is what we find him doing in the opening of this chapter. The discussion that he and the close relative have in verses 3 to 4 is along those very lines, isn't it? Look there at the formal nature of this discussion. Boaz has met the relative at the town gate and gathered ten elders of the town around. Look there at verse 3. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. As we witness this scene unfold, (coughs) we need to realize that we are witnessing the workings of an institution designed by the redeeming God, set up for, for the good of families within the nation. This is not family politics that is going on, but the plans of God for his people to reflect the character of their God, their doctrine of God and his ways would shape the culture of his people. They would live in accordance with his ways. That was always God's intention for his people, to be a display people, if you like. The watching nations would look on upon Israel and the desire was that they would understand the very character of God for the way in which Israel functioned under God's rule. The New Testament, of course, says as Christians, we are, again, to be a display people to those around us, that our culture would be one where people taste of the redeeming love of God. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. A love that leads Jesus, of course, to the cross, to lay down his life for his people. This culture of redeeming love, you see, just as it was in Israel's DNA, or should have been in Israel's DNA, should be in our DNA as well. Our tendency is to marvel at the love of Boaz and Ruth in this book, but particularly in the case of Boaz, there is a sense in which he's only doing what he's supposed to be doing by displaying the love of God 
in his choices and priorities. That that is wondrous is not so much because Boaz is extra special as much as God's steadfast love, his provision for us, his people, is so abundant. (coughs) Boaz is a product of the very culture that God intended to generate through his covenant with Israel. And Christ calls us to the same love in the light of his coming, the rich one who became poor. It's the culture of redemption that this chapter opens up with. Secondly, let's just see the cost of redemption. The interaction between Boaz and the other unnamed guardian redeemer at the gate of Bethlehem exposes the radical and costly nature of redemption. Boaz, did you notice this as I read earlier, shrewdly makes the closer relative aware of the opportunity in two parts. Did you see that? Firstly, he speaks of Naomi and her situation only in verses 3 and 4. The deal is effectively that the guardian redeemer would buy Naomi's land and care for the old woman until she dies. And when she dies, the land would be his going forward, if it was just Naomi. It's a great opportunity. The guardian jumps in. I will redeem it, he says in verse 4. And then Boaz reveals the finer details of the proposal. Look at verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, the guardian redeemer buys Naomi's land and cares for her and also marries Ruth and supports her. It will mean if any children come along through Ruth, those children who will have Abimelech's name would inherit the land back when they grow up. At this Notice the guardian redeemer, unnamed, changes his tune, doesn't he? He backs out of the deal, verse 6. Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. (coughs) Notice his, his answer, his refusal, is because the cost is too much. Any gain the guardian redeemer might get from using the field is offset by the cost of supporting Naomi, Ruth, and any children she might have. They will inherit the field eventually, and the money that he has paid for it will have reduced rather than increased his assets, meaning he'll have less to leave to his own children. But the cost is not too great for Boaz. We know he's in love with Ruth, that he desires to marry her. But don't let this lessen (coughs) our understanding of the cost of throwing himself all in with Naomi and Ruth. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malion. I have also required Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead, with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his own town. Today, you are my witnesses. Notice he underlines, doesn't he? I have also, the cost, I've also acquired Ruth and Robert in order to maintain the dead with his property, so that the name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Any cost is worth it for Boaz, and with it, he offers life to this dead-end family. 
The Aramite named guardian, redeemer, weighs things up and says it's not worth it. He avoids the risk. He thinks of what he has rather than what he might do. He is perfectly conventional and wants to stick with what is familiar. And on one level, that's fine. Perhaps sensible. The cautious thing to do. But as readers of the story, if we have paid attention to the kind of woman Ruth is, we know that the guardian redeemer is walking away from a great treasure. Of course, we are all glad we want Ruth to marry Boaz. But still, in not taking the risk, he loses it out. Let me direct your thoughts in two ways. Firstly, to Jesus. As we remember the one who was rich, who for our sake became poor, aren't you glad that he wasn't worried about endangering his own estate? How easy would it have been for him, who had all of heaven's riches, looking on rebellious human beings, no treasures at all, and saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's worth the risk. I'm not sure it's really worth the cost to lay down my life. I'll stick with what I know. Instead, he willingly joins himself to us, the dead, the outcast, the strangers to the household of God, that in the language of Boaz, our names might not disappear, but re-recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. What a joy that Jesus, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, the redemption of his people, the redemption of you. If you're trusting in Christ, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, marvel again. This picture there in the Old Testament, God's reckless love to you. But brother and sister, what about us? Second direction of thought. Are we those who live our lives with a reckless Christ-like love for others? Are we just too focused on what we have rather than what God might do through those who faithfully seek to love others just as he called us to? Are we those who marvel at the redeeming love of Christ for us but are resistant to have that mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Understand this unnamed guardian redeemer, whose name is forgotten by history, the Hebrew refers to him as a so-and-so, misses out that day because the cost is too much. Do not be like him when it comes to the Christian life. Do not miss the adventure of living for the one true king, your eternal husband, Christ. Sell all like Boaz and choose Ruth. Sell all and buy the pearl of great price that is Christ. That is not simply a rousing sentiment. That is a radical lifestyle choice. To choose your life for Christ and his gospel. Men in the church, when it comes to eldership, it's that choice, isn't it not? Will I choose the cost of burden, taking shouldering responsibility despite all else that goes on in your, in your lives, all the other important stuff that goes on in your life. Because 
Christ is your treasure and you want to love his bride, the church. Why is the unnamed God and Redeemer more cautious than Boaz? Two thoughts. First, Boaz's his own family history. We're told in verse 21 that Salmon is the father of Boaz. Matthew in his gospel says the same, but adds whose mother was Rahab. The family had personal experience, didn't they, of redemption. Rahab, you'll remember, is rescued from Jericho because of, her, because of the kindness of the spies to her. She was rescued as the walls of the city collapse, like Ruth, not an Israelite, but one who sought shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. And secondly, of course, Boaz has experienced the remarkable kindness of Ruth's love to him and Ruth's love to Naomi, the true Christ figure in this story. Have you truly experienced the redeeming love of Christ? Those who do love much. Thirdly, the consequence, the cost of redemption. Thirdly, the consequences of redemption. So Boaz, with great joy, throws his lot in with Naomi and Ruth, and the witnesses respond with blessing. Look at verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And it is blessing that abounds. For verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Boaz commits to the covenant of marriage to Ruth, joins his estate to that of a widow and her Moabite daughter-in-law, who remember, chapter 1, was not able to have children with her first husband. And through this commitment to a dead-end family, life abounds. When we were looking at chapter 1 of this story, I said that only twice does the author of this book reference the direct activity of God. You'll remember the first is in chapter 1. We're told there the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them with food. In the famine-stricken land, God provides a harvest. In chapter 4, it is God who brings new life to the barren womb. God brought food to the barren land. Now he brings new life to the barren womb. As we've noted before in this series, the path of sacrificial love redeems life, brings resurrection life by the power of God. And notice the impact. It's not simply joy for Ruth, but also for Naomi. How poignant the closing scene of this happy family with a new baby. It's not what you might expect. Think, I wonder if you thought about this. If, if, if this was a Hollywood movie, a closing shot would have been of Ruth and Boaz, wouldn't it? And baby Obed sitting together on the sofa with a smiling Naomi looking on from the doorway. But look at verse 17. Who is the camera focused on in the closing scene? Who's holding the baby? 
not Ruth and Boaz, but it is Naomi and baby Obed that steal the closing moments. The women of the town are gathering round and saying, and hear the power of these words. You know, now we travel through the story. Look what it says. Naomi has a son. Not Ruth, Naomi. The arrival of the baby, rather than sidelining Naomi, blesses her with abundant new life. The book that began with tragedy and death threatening to drown Naomi ends with Naomi made new, with hope and a future all witnessed through the power of redeeming love. And in case we miss it, the author has already set us up. Look at verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you than seven sons has given him birth. That baby boy that Naomi holds in her arms is in a sense a redeemer too. He's a gift from Ruth and Boaz. Naomi is not yet old. There is time for this baby to grow into a young man and renew and sustain Naomi's life again and support her in her old age. The baby born in Bethlehem is God's gift as he enables Ruth to conceive a redeemer to renew life and sustain Naomi. And we can't but see the picture, can we? If we know the New Testament story, that in a greater way, becoming the one who comes from God, born in Bethlehem of the Virgin, comes to renew life, to renew your life, to sustain it, not only through his life, but through his death. This Redeemer who can say, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Life, life with God is the consequence of the redeeming love of Christ. Christian, you have this life. You belong to him as surely as Ruth belonged to Boaz. All that is his is yours. So live extravagantly. Live an extravagant life of love. For there is no fear for those who live in the love of Christ. And its consequence? Well, who knows? By the sovereign resurrection power of God, what could be achieved? Unimaginable things in this life and eternity through sacrificial love in the name of Christ. For that is how the story closes. The continuation of redemption. The narrator has a final artistic touch. This simple, clever human story of two struggling widows takes on a startling final twist, doesn't it? This story becomes, in this genealogy at the end of the book, suddenly a bright, radiant thread woven into the larger story of redemption. Commentators tell us that the seventh and tenth names in a Hebrew genealogy are usually the most important. Well, if that's the case, 
you didn't get more important than the tenth name of this genealogy, King David, the great king of Israel, the one to whom God promised a son who would reign on his throne forever. But number seven on the list is Boaz. Ruth, therefore, becomes the linchpin of the greatest dynasty in Israel's history. Was that her design? Back in chapter one, was that what she was thinking about? Was that what she was planning? Was she seeking that when she clung to Naomi on the road from Moab to Bethlehem? No. All she did was choose to love. She made that decision to lay down her own future for the life of another human being under God And the impact this story shows is unimaginable. You see, many readers observing the actions of Boaz as he redeems Naomi and Ruth have seen within this piece of family history someone greater than Boaz, the great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I want to suggest to you, if we're honest to the story, we see that Boaz's love, which goes to such great lengths, is brought to life by Ruth. It's her selfless love, that willingness to die to self which enables others to live and others to love. It is she that willingly walks through the gates of Bethlehem back in chapter 1, ignored, unthanked, who goes out immediately to glean as a foreigner in a place where she has never been before. And what happens under God's sovereign hand, is the flourishing of new life. From weakness comes strength, from brokenness, glory. Her love, as the book closed tells us, has an impact across generations. It leads to the great King David and beyond to the one born in Bethlehem of David's line, Jesus the Christ, whose redeeming love of us makes the incredible actions of Ruth seem but a pale reflection. But as we experience the redeeming love of Christ, we too should spread that same love, reflecting weekly the love of the Savior. The great theologian B.B. Warfield says this, self-sacrifice brought into the world brought Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of humanity. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. Christ has done that to you, Christian brother and sister. Will you do that? Will you live recklessly for the joy of life in the kingdom of God's love, knowing that you are secure because of the love 
of Christ. Ruth did. Boaz did. Will we? Here is the great truth. That to live such a life is to really live. As Warfield says, it's to live a thousand lives. So purpose to live in the legacy of God's love to you in Christ. Don't simply aim to say a quiet thank you. Receive from Christ. Give, give generously. Spend and be spent for the line that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you that it speaks of your character and the way that by your grace, human life can reflect your love and your goodness. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that through your love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, you call us to be a people, a community, a family of love. And Lord, we ask, therefore, that we would know more of the love of Christ in our own lives and that we too would honour him as we too have his mind as we lay down our lives for others, for their eternal benefit. Lord, help us. Lord, you know the many things on our uh, agendas. Lord, you know uh, just the temptation in our society that we live for the easy and quiet life. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that the life of Ruth and Boaz is a life of adventure in your hands, safe, trusting in your providence. And we pray that we too, even this week, in the small things you give us, in the places you've already placed us, would help us to imagine what faithful living might do by your power, by your grace at work in us and through us. Lord, may we be a community, a church of people that seeks to love others. And may you so work through us that they may indeed taste not just our love, but the love of the Lord Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.